Chapter 14, Part B of the Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, by Giacomo Casanova. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Memoirs of Jacques Casanova, Volume 1, The Venetian Years, by Giacomo Casanova. Yusuf came home, and far from being angry when he saw me with the woman, he remarked that I must have found much pleasure in conversing with the native of Rome, and he congratulated me upon the delight I must have felt in dancing with one of the beauties from the harem of the voluptuous Ismail. Then it must be a pleasure seldom enjoyed, if it is so much talked of. Very seldom indeed, for there is amongst us an invisible prejudices against exposing our lovely woman to the eyes of other men but everybody may do so as he pleases in his own house. Ismail is very worthy and a very intelligent man. Is the lady with whom I danced known? I believe not. She wore a mask, and everyone knows that Ismail possesses half a dozen slaves of surpassing beauty. I spent a pleasant day with Yusuf, and when I left him, I ordered my janissary to take me to Ismail's. As I was known by his servants, they allowed me to go in, and I proceeded to the spot described in the letter. The eunuch came to me, informed me that his master was out, but that he would be delighted to hear of me having taken a walk in the garden. I told him that I would like a glass of lemonade, and he took me to the summer house, where I recognized the old woman who sold me the tobacco pouch. The eunuch told her to give me a glass of some liquid which I found delicious, and would not allow me to give her any money. We then talked together towards the fountain, but he told me abruptly that we were to go back, for he saw three ladies, to whom he pointed, adding that, for the sake of decency, it was necessary to avoid them. I thanked him for his attentions, left my compliments for Ismail, and went away not dissatisfied with my first attempt, and with the hope of being more fortunate another time. The next morning I received a letter from Ismail, inviting me to go fishing with him on the following day, and stating that he intended to enjoy the sport by moonlight. I immediately gave way to my suppositions, and I went so far as to fancy that Ismail might be capable of arranging an interview between me and the lovely Venetian. I did not mind his being present. I begged permission of Chevalier Vignier to stop out of the palace for one night, but he granted it with the greatest difficulty, for he was afraid of some love affair and the results it might have. I took care to calm his anxiety as much as I could, but without acquainting him with all the circumstances of the case, for I thought I was wise in being discreet. I was exact to the appointed time, and Ismail received me with the utmost cordiality, but I was surprised when I found myself alone with him in the boat. We had two rowers and a man to steer. We took some fish, fried in oil, and ate it in the summer-house. The moon shone brightly, the night was delightful. Alone with Ismail, and knowing his unnatural tastes, I did not feel very comfortable, for, in spite of what Monsieur de Bonneval had told me, I was afraid lest the Turk should take a fancy to give me too great a proof of his friendship, and I did not relish our tete-a-tete. -tete. But my fears were groundless. Let us leave this pace quietly, said Ismael. I have just heard a slight noise which heralds something that will amuse us. He dismissed his attendants and took my hand, saying, Let us go to a small room, the key of which I luckily have with me, but let us be careful not to make any noise. The room has a window overlooking the fountain, where I think that two or three of my beauties have just gone to bathe. We will see them and enjoy a very pleasing sight, for they do not imagine that anyone is looking at them. They know that the place is forbidden to everyone except me. We entered the room, we went to the window, and the moon was shining right over the basin of the fountain. We saw three nymphs who, now swimming, now standing, or sitting on the marble steps, offered themselves to our eyes in every possible position, and with all the attitudes of graceful voluptuousness. Dear reader, I must not paint in too vivid color the details of that beautiful picture, but if nature has endowed you with an ardent imagination, and with equally ardent senses, you will easily imagine the fearful havoc which that unique, wonderful, and enchanting sight must have made upon my poor body. A few days after that delightful fishing and bathing party by moonlight, I called upon Yusuf early in the morning. As it was raining, I could not go to the garden, and I went into the dining room, in which I had never seen anyone. The moment I entered the room, a charming female form rose, covered her features with a thick veil which fell to the feet. A slave was sitting near the window, doing some timbre work, but she did not move. I apologized and turned to leave the room, but the lady stopped me, observing with a sweet voice that Yusuf had commanded her to entertain me before going out, 
She invited me to be seated, pointed to a rich cushion, placed upon two larger ones, and I obeyed. While crossing her legs, she sat down upon another cushion opposite to me. I thought I was looking upon Zelmi, and fancied that Yusuf had made upon his mind to show me that he was not less courageous than Ismael. Yet I was surprised, for by such a proceeding he strongly contradicted his maxims, and ran the risk of impairing the unbiased purity of my consent by throwing love in the balance. But I had no fear of that, because, to become enamored, I should have required to see her face. I suppose, said the veiled beauty, that you do not know who I am. I could not guess if I tried. I have been, for the last five years, the wife of your friend, and I am a native of Skyo. I was thirteen years of age when I became his wife. I was greatly astonished to find that my Mussulman philosopher had gone so far as to allow me to converse with his wife, but I felt more at ease after I had received that information, and I fancied that I might carry the adventure farther. But it would be necessary to see the lady's face, for a finely dressed body, the head of which is not seen, excites but very feeble desires. The fire lighted by amorous desires is like the fire of straw. The moment it burns up, it is near its end. I had before me a magnificent appearance, but I could not see the soul of the image, for a thick gauze concealed it from my hungry gaze. I could see arms, as white as alabaster, and hands, like those of Alkina, dove ne nodo apiasse se vene acere, and my imagination fancied that all the rest was in harmony with these beautiful specimens, for the graceful folds of the muslin, leaving the outline all its perfection, hid from me only the living satin of the surface. There was no doubt that everything was lovely, but I wanted to see, in the expression of her eyes, that all my imagination created had life and was endowed with feeling. The oriental costume is a beautiful varnish placed upon a porcelain vase to protect it from the touch of the colors of the flowers and of the design, without lessening the pleasure of the eyes. Yusuf's wife was not dressed like the sultana. She wore the costume of Skyo, with a short skirt which concealed neither the perfection of the legs nor the round form of the thigh, nor the voluptuous plump fall of the hips, nor the slender, well-made waist, encompassed in a splendid band embroidered in silver and covered with arabesques. Above all these beauties I could see the shape of two globes, which Apelles would have taken for the model of those of his lovely Venus, and the rapid, unequal movement, of which proved to me that those ravishing hillocks were animated. The small valley left between them, and which my eyes greedily feasted upon, seemed to me to be a lake of nectar, in which my burning lips longed to quench with thirst, with more ardor than they would have drunk from the cup of the gods. Enraptured, unable to control myself, I thrust an arm forward, by a movement almost independent of my will, and my hand, too audacious, was on the point of lifting the hateful veil, but she prevented me by raising herself quickly on tiptoe, upbraiding me at the same time for my perfidious boldness with a voice as commanding as her attitude. Dost thou deserve, she said, Yusuf's friendship, when thou abusest the sacred laws of hospitality by insulting his wife? Madam, you must kindly forgive me, for I never had an intention to insult you. In my country the lowest of men may fix his eyes upon the face of a queen. Yes, but he cannot tear off her veil if she chooses to wear it. Yusuf shall avenge me. The threat and the tone in which it was pronounced frightened me. I threw myself at her feet and succeeded in calming her anger. Take a seat, she said. And she sat down herself, crossing her legs with so much freedom that I caught a glimpse of charms which would have caused me to lose all self-control over myself if the delightful sight had remained one moment longer exposed to my eyes. I then saw that I had gone the wrong way to work, and I felt vexed with myself, but it was too late. Art thou excited? she asked. How could I be otherwise? I answered, when thou art scorching me with an ardent fire. I had become more prudent, and I seized her hand without thinking any more of her face. Here is my husband, she said, and Yusuf came into the room. We rose, Yusuf embraced me, I complimented him, and the slave left the room. Yusuf thanked his wife for having entertained me, and offered her his arm to take her to her own apartment. She took it, but when she reached the door she raised her veil, and kissing her husband she allowed me to see her lovely face, as if it had been done unwittingly. I followed her with my eyes as long as I could, and Yusuf, coming back to me, said with a laugh that his wife had offered to dine with us. I thought, I said to him, that I had Zomi before me. That would have been too much against our established rules. What I have done is not much, but I do not know an honest man who would be bold enough to bring his daughter into the presence of a stranger. 
I think your wife must be handsome. Is she more beautiful than Zelmi? My daughter's beauty is cheerful, sweet, and gentle. That of Sophia is proud and haughty. She will be happy after my death. The man who will marry her will find a virgin. I gave an account of my adventure to Monsieur de Bonneval, somewhat exaggerating the danger I had to run in trying to raise the veil of the handsome daughter of Scio. She was laughing at you, said the Count, and you ran no danger. She felt very sorry, believe me, to have to deal with a novice like you. You've been playing the comedy in the French fashion, when you ought to have gone straight to the point. What on earth did you want to see her nose for? She knew very well that she would have gained nothing by allowing you to see her. You ought to have secured the essential point. If I were young, I would perhaps manage to give her revenge, and to punish my friend Yusuf. You have given that lovely woman a poor opinion of Italian valor. The most reserved of Turkish women has no modesty except on her face, and with her veil over it, she knows to a certainty that she will not blush at anything. I am certain that your beauty keeps her face covered whenever our friend Yusuf wishes to joke with her. Yet she is a virgin. Rather a difficult thing to admit, my good friend, but I know the daughters of Scio. They have a talent for counterfeiting virginity. Yusuf never paid me a similar compliment again, and he was quite right. A few days later, I happened to be in the shop of an Armenian merchant looking at some beautiful goods when Yusuf entered the shop and praised my taste, and although I had admired a great many things I did not buy because I thought they were too dear. I said so to Yusuf, but he remarked that they were, on the contrary, very cheap, and he purchased them all. We parted company at the door, and the next morning I received all the beautiful things he had bought. It was a delicate attention of my friend, and to prevent my refusal of such a splendid present, he had enclosed a note stating that, on my arrival in Corfu, he would let me know to whom the goods were to be delivered. He had thus sent me gold and silver filigrees from Damascus, portfolios, scarfs, belts, handkerchiefs, and pipes, the whole worth four or five hundred piastres. When I called to thank him, I compelled him to confess that it was a present offered by his friendship. The day before my departure from Constantinople, the most excellent man burst into tears as I bade him adieu, and my grief was as great as his own. He told me that, by not accepting the offer of his daughter's hand, I had so strongly captivated his esteem that his feelings for me could not have been warmer if I had become his son. When I went on board ship with Bailo Jean Dona, I found another case given to me by him, containing two quintals of the best mocha coffee, one hundred pounds of tobacco leaves, two large flagons filled, one with Zabendi tobacco, the other with Camusa, and a magnificent pipe tube of jessamine wood, covered with gold filigrane, which I sold in Corfu for one hundred sequins. I had it not in my power to give my generous Turk any mark of my gratitude until I reached Corfu, but there I did not fail to do so. I sold all his beautiful presents, which made me the possessor of a small fortune. Ismael gave me a letter for the Chevalier de Lézé, but I could not forward it to him, because I had unfortunately lost it. He presented me with a barrel of hydromel, which I turned likewise into money. Monsieur de Bonneval gave me a letter for Cardinal Aquaviva, which I sent to Rome with an account of my journey, but his eminence did not think fit to acknowledge the receipt of either. Bonneval made me a present of twelve bottles of Malmazy from Ragusa, and twelve bottles of General Scopolo, a great rarity, with which I made a present in Corfu which proved very useful to me, as the reader will discover. The only foreign minister I saw much in Constantinople was the Lord Marshal of Scotland, the celebrated Keith, who represented the King of Prussia, who, six years later, was of great service to me in Paris. We sailed from Constantinople in the beginning of September, in the same man-of-war which had brought us, and we reached Corfu in fourteen days. The Bailo Dana did not land. He had with him eight splendid Turkish horses. I saw two of them still alive in Goriza in the year 1773. As soon as I had landed with my luggage and had engaged a rather mean lodging, I presented myself to Monsieur André Dauphin, the Proveditore Generale, who promised me again that I should be promoted to a lieutenancy. After my visit to him, I called upon Monsieur Camporese, my captain, and was well received by him. My third visit was to the commander of Galicis, Monsieur D. R., to whom Monsieur Antonio Dauphin with whom I had travelled from Venice to Corfu, had kindly recommended me. After a short conversation, he asked me if I would remain with him with the title of adjutant. I did not hesitate one instant, but accepted, saying how deeply honoured I felt by his offer, 
and assuring him that he would always find me ready to carry out his orders. He immediately had me taken to my room, and the next day I found myself established in his house. I obtained from my captain a French soldier to serve me, and I was well pleased when I found that the man was a hairdresser by trade, and a great talker by nature, for he could take care of my beautiful head of hair, and I wanted to practice French conversation. He was a good-for-nothing fellow, a drunkard and a debauchee, a peasant from Picardy, and he could hardly read or write, but I did not mind that at all. All I wanted from him was to serve me, to talk to me, and his French was pretty good. He was an amusing rogue, knowing by heart a quantity of erotic songs and of smutty stories, which he could tell in the most laughable manner. When I had sold my stock of goods from Constantinople, except the wines, I found myself the owner of nearly five hundred sequins. I redeemed all the articles which I had pledged in the hands of Jews, and turned into money everything of which I had no need. I was determined not to play any longer as a dupe, but to secure in gambling all the advantages which a prudent young man could obtain without sullying his honor. I must now make my readers acquainted with the sort of life we were at the time leading in Corfu. As to the city itself, I will not describe it, because there are already many descriptions better than the one I could offer in these pages. We had then in Corfu the Provitore Generale, who had sovereign authority, and lived in a style of great magnificence. That post was then filled by Monsieur André Dauphin, a man sixty years of age, strict, headstrong, and ignorant. He no longer cared for women, but liked to be courted by them. He received every evening, and the supper table was always laid for twenty-four persons. We had three field officers of the marines who did duty on the galleys, three field officers for the troops of the line on board the men of war. Each galleys had a captain called Soporcomito, and we had ten of those captains. We had likewise ten commanders, one for each man of war, including three capi di mare, or admirals. They all belonged to the nobility of Venice. Ten young Venetian noblemen from twenty to twenty-two years of age were at Corfu as midshipmen in the navy. We had, besides, about a dozen civil clerks in the police of the island, or in the administration of justice entitled Grandi Officiali de Terra. Those who were blessed with handsome wives had the pleasure of seeing their houses very much frequented by admirers who aspired to win the favors of the ladies. But there was not much heroic love-making, perhaps for the reason that there were then in Corfu many Aspasias, whose favors could be had for money. Gambling was allowed everywhere, and all that absorbing passion was very prejudicial to the emotions of the heart. The lady, who was then most eminent for beauty and gallantry, was Madame F. Her husband, captain of a galley, had come to Corfu with her the year before, and the madame had greatly astonished all the naval officers. Thinking that she had the privilege of choice, she gave the preference to Monsieur D. R., and had dismissed all the suitors who presented themselves. Monsieur F. had married her on the very day she had left the convent. She was only seventeen years of age then, and he had brought her on board his galley immediately after the marriage ceremony. I saw her for the first time at the dinner table, on the very day of my installation, at Monsieur D. R.'s, and she made a very great impression upon me. I thought I was gazing at a supernatural being, so infinitely above all the women I had ever seen, that it seemed impossible to fall in love with her. She appeared to me of a nature different, and so greatly superior to mine that I did not see the possibility of rising up to her. I even went so far as to persuade myself that nothing but a platonic friendship could exist between her and Monsieur D. R., and that Monsieur F. was quite right not to show any jealousy. Yet that Monsieur F. was a perfect fool, and certainly not worthy of such a woman. The impression made upon me by Madame F. was too ridiculous to last long, and the nature of it soon changed, but in a novel matter, at least as far as I was concerned. My position as adjutant procured me the honor of dining at Monsieur D. R.'s table, but nothing more. The other adjutant, like me, an ensign in the army, but the greatest fool I had ever seen, shared that honor with me. We were not, however, considered as guests, for nobody ever spoke to us, and what more, nobody ever honored us with a look. It used to put me in a rage. I knew very well that people acted in that manner, through no real contempt for us, but it went very hard with me. I could very well understand that my colleague, 
Sanzonio should not complain of such treatment, because he was a blockhead, but I did not feel disposed to allow myself to be put on a par with him. At the end of eight or ten days, Madame F., not having condescended to cast one glance on my person, began to appear disagreeable to me. I felt piqued, vexed, provoked, and the more so because I could not suppose that the lady acted in that manner willfully and purposefully. I would have been highly pleased if there had been some premeditation on her part. I felt satisfied that I was a nobody in her estimation, and as I was conscious of being somebody, I wanted to let her know it. At last a circumstance offered itself in which, thinking that she could address me, she was compelled to look at me. Monsieur D. R., having observed that a very, very fine turkey had been placed before me, told me to carve it, and I immediately went to work. I was not a skillful carver, and Madame F., laughing at my want of dexterity, told me that, if I had not been certain of performing my task with credit to myself, I ought not to have undertaken it. Full of confusion, and unable to answer her as my anger prompted, I sat down, with my heart overflowing with spite and hatred against her. To crown my rage, having one day to address me, she asked me what was my name. She had seen me every day for a fortnight, ever since I had been the adjutant of Monsieur D. R. Therefore she ought to have known my name. Besides, I had been very lucky at the gaming table, and I had become rather famous in Corfu. My anger against Madame F. was at its height. I had placed my money in the hands of a certain Maroli, a major in the army and a gamester by profession, who held the Faro Bank at the coffee-house. We were partners. I helped him when he dealt, and he rendered me the same office when I held the cards, which was often the case, because he was not generally liked. He used to hold the cards in a way which frightened the punters. My manners were very different, and I was very lucky. Besides, I was easy and smiling when my bank was losing, and I won without showing any avidity, and that is a manner which always pleases the punters. This Moroli was the man who had won all of my money during my first day in Corfu, and finding, when I returned, that I was resolved not to be duped any more, he judged me worthy of sharing the wise maxims without which gambling must necessarily ruin all those who meddle with it. But, as Moroli had won my confidence only to a very slight extent, I was very careful. We made up our accounts every night, and as soon as playing was over, the cashier kept the capital of the bank, the winnings were divided, and each took his own share away. Lucky at play, enjoying good health and the friendship of my comrades, who, whenever the opportunity offered, always found me generous and ready to serve them, I would have been very well pleased with my position if I had been a little more considered at the table of Monsieur D. R., and treated with less haughtiness by his lady, who, without any reason, seemed disposed to humiliate me. My self-love was deeply hurt. I hated her, and, with such a disposition of mine, the more I admired the perfection of her charms, the more I found her deficient in wit and intelligence. She might have made the conquest of my heart without bestowing hers upon me, for all I wanted was not to be compelled to hate her, and I could not understand what pleasure it could be for her to be detested while with only a little kindness she could have been adored. I could not ascribe her manner to a spirit of coquetry, for I had never given her the slightest proof of the opinion I entertained of her beauty, and I could not therefore attribute her behavior to a passion which might have rendered me disagreeable in her eyes. Monsieur D. R. seemed to interest her only in a very slight manner, and as to her husband she cared nothing for him. In short, that charming woman made me very unhappy and I was angry with myself because I felt that, if it had not been for the manner of which she treated me, I would not have thought of her, and my vexation was increased by the feeling of hatred entertained by my heart against her, a feeling which until then I had never known to exist in me, and the discovery of which overwhelmed me with confusion. One day a gentleman handed me, as we were leaving the dinner table, a roll of gold that he had lost upon trust. Madame F. saw it, and said to me very abruptly, "'What do you do with your money?' "'I keep it, madam, as a provision against possible losses. "'But as you do not indulge in any expense, it would be better for you not to play. "'It is time wasted.' "'Time given to pleasure is never time lost, madam. "'The only time which a young man wastes is that which he is consumed in weariness, "'because when he is a prey to ennui, he is likely to fall a prey to love.' and to be despised by the object of his affection. 
Very likely, but you amuse yourself with hoarding up your money and show yourself to be a miser, and a miser is not less contemptible than a man in love. Why do you not buy yourself a pair of gloves? You may be sure that at these words the laughter was all on her side, and my vexation was all the greater because I could not deny that she was right. It was the adjutant's business to give the ladies an arm to their carriages, and it was not proper to fulfill that duty without gloves. I felt mortified, and the reproach of avarice hurt me deeply. I would a thousand times rather that she had laid my heir to a want of education, and yet, so full of contradictions is the human heart, instead of making amends by adopting an appearance of elegance, which the state of my finances enabled me to keep up, I did not purchase any gloves, and I resolved to avoid her and to abandon her to the insipid and dull gallantry of San Zosio, who sported gloves, but whose teeth were rotten, whose breath was putrid, who wore a wig, and whose face seemed to be covered with shriveled yellow parchment. I spent my days in a continual state of rage and spite, and the most absurd part of it all was that I felt unhappy because I could not control my hatred for that woman whom, in good conscience, I could not find guilty of anything. She had for me neither love nor dislike, which was quite natural, but being young and disposed to enjoy myself, I had become, without any willful malice on her part, and I sore to her, and the butt of her bantering jokes, which my sensitiveness exaggerated greatly. For all that I had an ardent wish to punish her, and to make her repent, I thought of nothing else. At one time I would think of devoting my intelligence and all my money to kindling an amorous passion in her heart, and then to revenge myself by treating her with contempt. But I soon realized the impracticability of such a plan, for even supposing that I should succeed in finding my way to her heart, was I the man to resist my own success with such a woman? I certainly could not flatter myself that I was so strong-minded. But I was the pet child of fortune, and my position was suddenly altered. Monsieur D. R., having sent me with dispatches to Monsieur de Condumar, captain of a Galiza, I had to wait until midnight to deliver them, and when I returned I found that Monsieur D. R. had retired to his apartment for the night. As soon as he was visible in the morning, I went to him to render my account of my mission. I had been with him only a few minutes when his valet brought a letter saying that Madame F.'s adjutant was waiting for an answer. Monsieur D. R. read the note, tore it to pieces, and in his excitement stamped with his foot upon the fragments. He walked up and down the room for a little time, then wrote an answer and rang for the adjutant, to whom he delivered it. He then recovered his usual composure, concluded the perusal of the dispatch sent by Monsieur de Condumar, and told me to write a letter. He was looking it over when the valet came in, telling me that Madame F. desired to see me. Monsieur D. R. told me that he did not require my services any more for the present, and that I might go. I left the room, but I had not gone ten yards when he called me back to remind me that my duty was to know nothing. I begged to assure him that I was very well aware of that fact. I ran to Madame F.'s house, very eager to know what she wanted with me. I was introduced immediately, and I was greatly surprised to find her sitting up in bed, her countenance flushed and excited, and her eyes red from the tears that she had evidently been shedding. My heart was beating quickly, yet I did not know why. "'Pray be seated,' she said. "'I wish to speak with you.' "'Madame,' I answered, I am not worthy of so great a favor, and I have not done anything to deserve it. Allow me to remain standing. She very likely recollected that she had never been so polite before, and dared not press me any further. She collected her thoughts for an instant or two, and said to me, Last evening my husband lost two hundred sequins upon trust at your Faro Bank. He believed that amount to be in my hands, and I must therefore give it to him immediately, as he is bound in honor to pay his losses today. Unfortunately, I have disposed of the money, and I am in very great trouble. I thought you might tell Moroli that I have paid you the amount lost by my husband. Here is a ring of some value. Keep it until the 1st of January, when I will return the 200 sequins, for which I am ready to give you my note of hand. I accept the note of hand, madam, but I cannot consent to deprive you of your ring. I must also tell you that Monsieur F. must go himself to the bank, or send someone there to redeem his debt. Within ten minutes you shall have the amount you require. I left her without waiting for an answer, and I returned within a few minutes with two hundred ducats, which I handed to her, and putting in my pocket her note of hand, which she had just written, I bowed to take my leave, 
but she addressed to me these precious words. I believe, sir, that if I had known you were so well disposed to oblige me, I could not have made up my mind to beg that service from you. Well, madam, for the future be quite certain that there is not a man in the world capable of refusing you such an insignificant service whenever you will condescend to ask for it in person. What you say is very complimentary, but I trust never to find myself again under the necessity of making such a cruel experiment. I left Madame F., thinking of the shrewdness of her answer. She had not told me that I was mistaken, as I expected she would, for that would have caused her some humiliation. She knew that I was with Monsieur D. R. when the adjutant had brought her letter, and she could not doubt that I was aware of the refusal she had met with. The fact of her not mentioning it proved to me that she was jealous of her own dignity. It afforded me great gratification, and I thought her worthy of adoration. I saw clearly that she could have no love for Monsieur D. R., and that she was not loved by him, and the discovery made me leap for joy. From that moment I felt I was in love with her, and conceived the hope that she might return my ardent affection. The first thing I did when I returned to my room was to cross out with ink every word of her note of hand, except her name, in such a manner that it was impossible to guess at the contents, and putting it in an envelope carefully sealed, I deposited it in the hands of a public notary who stated, in the receipt he gave me of the envelope, that he would deliver it only to Madame F., whenever she would request its delivery. The same evening, Monsieur F. came to the bank, paid me, played with the cash in hand, and won some fifty ducats. What caused me the greatest surprise was that Monsieur D. R. continued to be very gracious to Madame F., and that she remained exactly the same towards him as she used to be before. He did not even inquire what she wanted when she sent for me, but if she did not seem to change her manner towards my master, it was in a very different case with me, for whenever she was opposite to me at dinner, she often addressed herself to me, and thus gave me many opportunities of showing my education and my wit, in amusing stories or in remarks, in which I took care to blend instruction with witty jests. At that time, F. had the great talent of making others laugh, why I kept a serious countenance myself. I had learned that accomplishment from Monsieur de Malipiero, my first master in the art of good breeding, who used to say to me that, if you wish your audience to cry, you must shed tears yourself, but if you wish to make them laugh, you must contrive to look as serious as a judge. In everything I did, in every word I uttered in the presence of Madame F., the only aim I had was to please her, but I did not wish her to suppose so, and I never looked at her unless she spoke to me. I wanted to force her curiosity, to compel her to suspect, nay, to guess my secret, but without giving her any advantage over me it was necessary for me to proceed by slow degrees. In the meantime, and until I should have a greater happiness, I was glad to see that my money, that magic talisman, and my good conduct, obtained me a consideration much greater than I could have hoped to obtain either through my position, or from my age, or in consequence of any talent I might have shown in the profession I had adopted. Towards the middle of November, the soldier who acted as my servant was intact with inflammation of the chest, I gave notice of it to the captain of his company, and he was carried to the hospital. On the fourth day I was told that he would not recover, and that he had received the last sacraments. In the evening I happened to be at his captain's, when the priest who had attended him came to announce his death, and to deliver a small parcel which the dying man had entrusted to him to be given up to his captain only after his death. The parcel contained a brass seal engraved with ducal arms, a certificate of baptism, and a sheet of paper covered with writing in French. Captain Comparese, who only spoke Italian, begged me to translate the paper, the contents of which were as follows. My will is that this paper, which I have written and signed with my own hand, shall be delivered to my captain only after I have breathed my last. Until then my confessor shall not make any use of it, for I entrust it to his hands only under the seal of confession. I entreat my captain to have me buried in a vault from which my body can be exhumed in case the duke, my father, should request its exhumation. I entreat him likewise to forward my certificate of baptism, the seal with the armorial bearings of my family, and a legal certificate of my birth to the French ambassador in Venice, who will send the whole to the duke, my father, my rights of primogenitor belonging, after my demise, to the prince, my brother, in faith of which I have signed and sealed these presents. Francois the Fourth, Charles Philippe, 
Louis Foucault, Prince de la Rochefoucauld. The certificate of baptism, delivered at St. Sulpice, gave the same names, and the title of the father was Francois V. The name of his mother was Gabrielle de Plusis. As I was concluding my translation, I could not help bursting into loud laughter. But the foolish captain, who thought my mirth out of place, hurried out to render an account of the affair to the Provitore Generale, and I went to the coffee-house, not doubting for one moment that His Excellency would laugh at the captain, and that the post-mortem buffoonery would greatly amuse the whole of Corfu. I had known in Rome, at Cardinal Acquaviva's, the Abbe de Liancourt, great-grandson of Charles, whose sister, Gabrielle de Plessis, had been the wife of Francois V., but that dated from the beginning of the last century. I had made a copy from the records of the cardinal of the account of certain circumstances which the Abbe de Leoncourt wanted to communicate to the court of Spain, and in which there was a great many particulars respecting the house of Du Plessis. I thought at the same time that the singular imposture of La Valour, such was the name by which my soldier generally went, was absurd and without a motive, since it was known only after his death and could not therefore prove of any advantage to him. Half an hour afterwards, as I was opening up a fresh pack of cards, the adjutant Sanzosio came in, and told the important news of the most serious manner. He had just come from the office of the Provitore, where Captain Compressi had run, in the utmost hurry, to deposit in the hands of His Excellency the seals and paper of the deceased prince. His Excellency had immediately issued the orders for the burial of the prince in a vault, with all honors due to his exalted rank. Another half-hour passed, and Monsieur Minolto, adjutant of the Provitore General, came in to inform me that His Excellency wanted to see me. I passed the cards to Major Moroli, and went to His Excellency's house. I found him at supper with several ladies, three or four naval commanders, Madame F. and Monsieur D. R. So your servant was a prince, said the old general to me. Your Excellency, I would never have suspected it, and even now that he is dead I do not believe it. Why? He is dead, but he was not insane. You have seen his armor bearings, his certificate of baptism, as well as what he wrote with his own hand. When a man is so near death, he does not fancy practical jokes. If your Excellency is satisfied of the truth, then it is my duty to remain silent. The story cannot be anything but true, and your doubts surprise me. I doubt, Monsignor, because I happen to have positive information respecting the families of La Rochefoucauld and Du Plessis. Besides, I have seen too much of the man. He was not a madman, but he was certainly an extravagant jester. I have never seen him write, and he has told me himself a score of times that he has never learned. The paper he has written proves the contrary. His arms have the ducal bearings, but perhaps you are not aware that Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld is a duke and a peer of the French realm. I beg your eminence's pardon. I know all about it. I know even more, for I know that Francois the Fourth married a daughter of the house of Vivonne. You know nothing. When I heard this remark, as foolish as it was rude, I resolved on remaining silent, and it was with some pleasure that I observed the joy felt by all the male guests at what they thought an insult and a blow to my vanity. An officer remarked that the deceased was a fine man, a witty man, and had shown wonderful cleverness in keeping up his assumed character so well that no one ever had the faintest suspicion of what he really was. A lady said that, if she had known him, she would have been certain to find him out. Another flatterer, belonging to that mean, contemptible race, always to be found near the great and wealthy of the earth, assured us that the late prince had always shown himself cheerful, amiable, obliging, devoid of haughtiness towards his comrades, and that he used to sing beautifully. He was only twenty-five years of age, said Madame Sagredo, looking at me full in the face, and if he was endowed with all those qualities, you must have discovered them. I can only give you, Madame, a true likeness of the man such as I have known him. Always gay, often even to a folly, for he could throw a somersault beautifully, singing songs of a very erotic kind, full of stories and popular tales of magic, miracles and ghosts, and a thousand marvelous feats which common sense refused to believe and which, for that very reason, provoked the mirth of his hearers. His fault was that he was drunken, dirty, quarrelsome, dissolute, and something of a cheat. I put up with all his deficiencies, because he dressed my hair to my taste, 
and his constant chattering offered me the opportunity of practicing the colloquial French which cannot be acquired from books. He has always assured me that he was born in Picardy, the son of a common peasant, and that he had deserted from the French army. He may have deceived me when he said that he could not write. Just then, Camporese rushed into the room and announced that La Valour was yet breathing. The general, looking at me significantly, said that he would be delighted if the man could be saved. And I likewise, monsieur, but his confessor will certainly kill him tonight. Why should the father confessor kill him? To escape the galleys to which your excellency would not fail to send him for having violated the secrecy of the confessional. Everybody burst out laughing, but the foolish old general knitted his brows. The guests retired soon afterwards, and Madame F., whom I had preceded to the carriage, Monsieur D. R., having offered her his arm, invited me to get in with her, saying that it was raining. It was the first time that she had bestowed such an honor upon me. I am of your opinion about that prince, she said, but you have incurred the displeasure of the provitore. I am very sorry, madam, but it cannot have been avoided, for I cannot help speaking the truth openly. You might have spared him, remarked Monsieur D. R., the cutting jest of the confessor killing the false prince. You are right, sir, but I thought it would make him laugh, as well as made the madam and your excellency. In conversation, people generally do not object to a witty jest causing merriment and laughter. True, only those who do not have wit enough to laugh do not like the jest. I bet a hundred sequins that the madam will recover, and that, having the general on his side, he will leap all the advantages of his imposture. I long to see him treated as a prince, and making love to Madame Sagredo. Hearing the last words, Madame F., who did not like Madame Sagredo, laughed heartily, and as we were getting out of the carriage, Monsieur D. R. invited me to accompany them upstairs. He was in the habit of spending half an hour alone with her at her house, when they had taken supper together with the general, for her husband never showed himself. It was the first time that the happy couple admitted a third person to their tete-a-tete. I felt very proud of the compliment thus paid to me, and I thought it might have important results for me. My satisfaction, which I concealed as well as I could, did not prevent me from being very gay and from giving a comic turn to every subject brought forth by the lady or by her lord. We kept our pleasant trio for four hours, and returned to the mansion of Monsieur D. R. only at two o'clock in the morning. It was during that night that Madame F. and Monsieur D. R. really made my acquaintance. Madame F. told him that she had never laughed so much, and that she had never imagined that a conversation, an appearance so simple, can afford so much pleasure and merriment. On my side, I discovered in her so much wit and cheerfulness that I became deeply enamored, and went to bed fully satisfied that, in the future, I could not keep up the show of indifference which I had so far assumed towards her. When I woke up the next morning, I heard from the new soldier who served me that La Valour was better, and had been pronounced out of danger by the physician. At dinner the conversation fell upon him, but I did not open my lips. Two days afterwards, the general gave orders to have him removed to a comfortable apartment, send him a servant, clothed him, and the overly credulous provveditore, having paid him a visit, all the naval commanders and officers thought it their duty to imitate him, and to follow his example. The general curiosity was excited. There was a rush to see the new prince. Monsieur D. R. followed his leaders, and Madame Sagredo, having set the ladies in motion, they all called upon him, with the exception of Madame F., who told me laughingly that she would not pay him a visit unless I would consent to introduce her. I begged to be excused. The knave was called Your Highness, and the wonderful prince styled Madame Sagredo his princess. Monsieur D. R. tried to persuade me to call upon the rogue, but I told him that I had said too much, and that I was neither courageous nor mean enough to retract my words. The whole imposture would soon have been discovered if anyone had possessed a peerage, but it just happened that there was not a copy in Corfu, and the French consul, a fat blockhead, like many other consuls, knew nothing of family trees. The madcap La Valour began to walk out a week after his metamorphosis into a prince. He dined and had supper every day with the general, and every evening he was present at the reception, during which, owing to his intemperance, he always went fast asleep. Yet there were two reasons which kept up the belief of his being a prince. 
The first was that he did not seem afraid of the news expected from Venice, where the Provveditore had written immediately after the discovery. The second was that he solicited from the bishop the punishment of the priest, who had betrayed his secret by violating the seal of confession. The poor priest had already been sent to prison, and the Provveditore did not have the courage to defend him. The new prince had been invited to dinner by all the naval officers, but Monsieur D. R. had not made up his mind to imitate them so far, because Madame F. had clearly warned him that she would dine at her own house on the day he was invited. I had likewise respectfully intimated that, on the same occasion, I would take the liberty of dining somewhere else. I met the prince one day as I was coming out of the old fortress leading to the Esplanda. He stopped and reproached me for not having called upon him. I laughed and advised him to think of his safety before the arrival of the news which would expose all the imposture, in which case the Provenitore was certain to treat him very severely. I offered to help him in his flight from Corfu, and to get a Neapolitan captain, whose ship was ready to sail, to conceal him on board. But the fool, instead of accepting my offer, loaded me with insults. He was courting Madame Sagredo, who treated him very well, feeling proud that a French prince would have given her preference over all the other ladies. One day that she was dining in great ceremony at Monsieur D. R.'s house, she asked me why I had advised the prince to run away. I have it from his own lips, she added, and he cannot make out your obstinacy in believing him an impostor. I had given him that advice, madam, because my heart is good and my judgment sane. Then are we all of us as many fools, the provenatory included? That deduction would not be right, madam. An opinion contrary to that of another does not necessarily make a fool of the person who entertains it. It might possibly turn out, in ten or twelve days, that I have been entirely mistaken myself, but I should not consider myself a fool in consequence. In the meantime, a lady of your intelligence must have discovered whether that man is a peasant or a prince by his education and manners. For instance, does he dance well? He does not know one step, but he is the first to laugh about it, he said he would never learn dancing. Does he behave well at table? Well, he does not stand on ceremony. He does not want his plate to be changed. He helps himself with his spoon out of the dishes. He does not know how to check an eructation or a yawn, and if he feels tired he leaves the table. It is evident that he was very badly brought up. And yet he is very pleasant, I suppose. Is he clean and neat? No, but then he is not very well provided with linen. I am told that he is very sober. <laughs> you are joking. He leaves the table intoxicated twice a day. But he ought to be pitied, for he cannot drink wine and keep his head clear. Then he swears like a trooper, and we all laugh, but he never takes offense. Is he witty? He has a wonderful memory, for he tells us new stories every day. Does he speak of his family? Very often of his mother, whom he loved tenderly. She was a duplessis. If his mother is still alive, she must be a hundred and fifty years old. What nonsense! Not at all. She was married in the days of Marie de Medici. But the certificate of baptism names the prince's mother and his seal. Do you know the armorial bearings he has on that seal? Do you doubt it? Very strongly, or rather I am certain that he knows nothing about it. We left the table, and the prince was announced. He came in, and Madame Sagredo lost no time in saying to him, Prince, here is Monsieur Casanova. He pretends that you do not know your own armorial bearings. Having heard these words, he came up to me, sneering, called me a coward, and gave me a smack on the face which almost stunned me. I left the room very slowly, not forgetting my hat and my cane, and went downstairs, while Monsieur D. R. was loudly ordering the servants to throw the madman out of the window. I left the palace and went to the Esplanade, in order to wait for him. The moment I saw him, I ran to meet him, and I beat him so violently with my cane that one blow alone ought to have killed him. He drew back and found himself being brought to a stand between two walls, where, to avoid being beaten to death, his only resource was to draw his sword. But the cowardly scoundrel did not even think of his weapon, and I left him on the ground covered in blood. The crowd formed a line for me to pass, and I went to the coffee-house. 
where I drank a glass of lemonade, without sugar, to precipitate the bitter saliva which rage had brought up from my stomach. In a few minutes, I found myself surrounded by all the young officers of the garrison, who joined in the general opinion that I ought to have killed him, and they at last annoyed me, for it was not my fault if I had not done so, and I would certainly have taken his life if he had drawn his sword. I had been in the coffee-house for half an hour, when the general's adjutant came to tell me that His Excellency ordered me to put myself under arrest on board the Bastarda, a galley on which the prisoners had their legs and irons like galley-slaves. The dose was rather too strong to be swallowed, and I did not feel disposed to submit to it. Very good, adjutant, I replied. It shall be done. He went away, and I left the coffee-house a moment after him. But when I reached the end of the street, instead of going towards the esplanade, I proceeded quickly towards the sea. I walked along the beach for a quarter of an hour, and finding a boat empty, but with a pair of oars, I got in her and unfastened her, and I rowed as hard as I could towards a large caico, sailing towards the wind with six oars. As soon as I had come up to her, I went on board and asked the Carabarchiri to sail before the wind and to take me to a large wherry, which could be seen at some distance going towards Vito Rock. I abandoned the rowboat, and after paying the master of the Caico generously, I got into the weary, made a bargain with the skipper who unfurled three sails, and in less than two hours we were fifteen miles away from Corfu. The wind having died away, I made the men row against the current, but towards midnight they told me that they could not row any longer. They were worn out with fatigue. They advised me to sleep until daybreak, but I refused to do so, and for a trifle I got them to put me on shore without asking where I was, in order not to raise their suspicions. It was enough for me to know that I was at a distance of twenty miles from Corfu, and in a place where nobody could imagine me to be. End of chapter 14, part B